Hello, this is Gabriela Alcantara Pulse. You're listening to the fourth episode of the podcast Zapatos Rojos, Red Shoes. Today, we're going to talk about the origin and practices of the Thanksgiving Day celebration. The I Ching, the Chinese book of changes, in one of its hexagrams, states that a life lived too rigorously and ascetic becomes bitter. What is more rigorous and ascetic than the Puritan beliefs and practices? Freedom of religion for them meant excluding anybody that had a divergent belief. There are many romantic versions of the first Thanksgiving feast shared by the pilgrim's colony and the native dwellers, the Wampanoag. Feelings of shared blessings and camaraderie. The Encyclopedia Britannica says that the holiday associated with pilgrims and Native Americans has come to symbolize intercultural peace, America's opportunities for newcomers, and the sanctity of home and family. In the cold, crisp air of November, the Thanksgiving that we experience is masses traveling to meet with their families across the country to engage in the unhealthy act of binging until we feel sick. It's a family tradition. The composed word Thanksgiving, as is obvious, comes from joining the words thanks and giving, commonly used in the 17th century as an uncapitalized noun in a sentence such as offering prayers in Thanksgiving, mostly in religious contexts. Thanksgiving didn't become a proper noun until the 1670s in the United States. The colony in Plymouth that was established by the offshoot of the Puritan cult, the Pilgrims, regularly celebrated Day of Thanksgiving, praying to God for the blessings they received. After the enactment of the Constitution, Congress proclaimed a national Thanksgiving Day, but after 1798, it was left to the states to proclaim it. Some states objected to Congress' involvement in a religious observance, so it became a partisan issue, especially thorny for the Southerners. The National Thanksgiving Day became more controversial than unifying, and it remained a tense subject until the mid-19th century, when Sarah Josepha Hale, editor of the pioneering antebellum women's magazine, Goddess Ladies Book campaigned in favor of the holiday, promoting it as a unifying gesture. Whether or not the magazine influenced President Lincoln, in 1863 he proclaimed a national day of thanksgiving and general blessings to be celebrated on Thursday, November 26. The date has remained the fourth Thursday of November. Thanksgiving Day traditions include football games organized by the Intercollegiate Football Association that started with Yale versus Princeton in 1876. And it can't be Thanksgiving without the parades, a product of the late 1800s rowdy crowds wearing costumes. In 1920, Kimmel's department stores in Philadelphia staged a parade of 50 people in costume with Santa Claus at the end. New York City Macy's Parade began in 1924. It was called Macy's Christmas Parade, with stores employees in costumes. These parades included, at some point, borrowed animals from the zoo and attracted thousands of people. In 1927, when it was renamed Macy's Thanksgiving Parade, balloons made by employees and volunteers were added. And of course, to culminate the day of feeling grateful for our bounties, Black Friday. 
Madness starts as soon as we're able to walk again. The American tradition came to be in the 60s, in Philadelphia, where the Amy Navy annual football game was hosted the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Fans of the game who arrived early to the city rushed to the stores to start their Christmas purchases early. Historically, it is the day when we, the consumers, turned the store's numbers from red into black. From food binging to shopping sprees, nothing could be farther from the intended, kind, heedful sentiment of the original concept of Thanksgiving. But returning to the origin of the celebration, there is scant documentation about it. We know that the Wampanoags, belonging to the Algonquin-speaking peoples of the East Coast, ate mostly shellfish, fish, eels, flint corn, and foraged wild onions, berries, and other herbs. We know that they farmed corn, squash, and beans in soil fertilized by fish. They caught fowl and hunted deer, moose, beaver, rabbit, skunk, raccoon, and turkey. They used the animals in their entirety for food, garments, utensils, and tools. The pilgrims, on the other hand, brought what is described in contemporaneous documents as meal. It might have been a type of wheat flour, and they brought very little of it. When they arrived, it was winter, and they were unable to farm. Living on the ship over the first winter, they foraged for what they could, but many of them suffered from scurvy. The situation was dire. The death toll was high, especially among women. In their excursions inland, they discovered the caches made by the Wampanoags for winter. The pilgrims raided these mounds, filled with corn and other edibles. The pilgrims also raided the Wampanoag's burial sites, which stowed dried food offerings like corn and acorns for the sustenance of their dead on their travels. By this point, the native population was already decimated by disease brought by contact with other Europeans. The stories of contacts, communications and skirmishes between the Wampanoags and the pilgrims vary depending on when and who wrote the story. One thing we know with certainty is that this quantum, a Wampanoag man who was lured along with another couple dozen Patuxet with the promise of beaver fur trade by the English explorer Thomas Hunt, was captured and then sold as slave. This quantum was sold in Malaga, Spain. A group of friars rescued these slaves with the intention of evangelizing them. Among them, this quantum traveled from Spain to England, where he learned English. Almost miraculously, he found his way back to America, where he was instrumental in the survival of the pilgrims. He taught them what to hunt and gather, how to farm the three sisters, corn, squash, and beans, allowing them to survive in the inhospitable and unknown terrain they found themselves to be in. The first Thanksgiving, given the two contemporary sources that we have, and there aren't many comprehensive descriptions of the menu, mentioned cod and bass, another fish, waterfowl and wild turkeys, venison, etc., and a pack of meal a week per person, which when depleted was refilled with Indian corn. Edward Winslow's former governor of Plymouth's plantation describes the meal 
and mentions that the Wampanoag shot five deer. That's all we know. The rest is conjecture. On a curious note, and because I come from the land of corn, where corn is our mother, I'd like to mention that the corn that the Plymouth Wampanoags grew, the so-called flint corn, has a very interesting story. As we know, corn originated in central Mexico, but soon traveled north into the American Southwest. According to fellow Algonquinian Narragansett people's tradition, the crow brought them at first an Indian grain of corn in one year and an Indian bean in another, from the great god Kautantowicz's fields in the southwest, from whence they hold come all their corn and beans. This is from, as we tell our stories, from the American Indian Archaeological Institute. Kautantowicz is the name of a great spirit of creator for many tribes in New England, and this is the direction that these communities pray to and their graves face. And this is from a key into the language of America. This myth reflects an historical accuracy since the Sea maize in Jurata or flint corn is native to Mexico and is thought to have been brought north by trade. This type of corn is called in Mexico Yankee corn and is considered an heirloom variety particularly resilient to cold weather due to its hard pericarp. The nutrients of this corn can only be made available through a process called nixtamalization, a Nahua word. It requires boiling the corn with a little lime or ash. This makes niacin available. Niacin deficiency is the cause of pellagra. Flint corn was therefore an important staple of the Algonquin-speaking people, and it became so for the pilgrims. It's amazing how from the alkaline lakes of Texcoco to Cape Cod, this bit of know-how traveled. The main character of our Thanksgiving table is a turkey. Over 50 million broad-breasted white turkeys will be eaten this Thanksgiving. The turkey that we buy in grocery stores has little resemblance with the New England's wild turkey. What we eat, mostly, comes from a type of turkey that is mass-produced in concentrated animal feeding operations. Cruel and unhealthy, but that's a different podcast. Heirloom turkeys, similar to the wild turkeys that were eaten at the first Thanksgiving, are leaner and gamier. The breasts, significantly smaller, and when you can find them, they're a lot pricier. Unless you're a foodie or a fabulous cook, the reality is that the turkey that we eat is often dry and flavorless. It serves as a medium, a carrier for all the fixings, mashed potatoes, sweet potatoes with marshmallows, canned cranberry. Is it sauce? Is it compote, gel? Anyway, stuffing made of white bread or stovetop stuffing mix, gravy, string beans with either Lipton or Campbell's cream of mushroom soup, and of course, topped with frognons. And let's not forget, the Libby's pumpkin pie with ready whip, the joy of cooking, a menu to literally die for. Foodies and yuppies have elevated the Thanksgiving menu to incredibly complicated dishes. Do you remember the turdokens? A turkey stuffed with a dog, stuffed with a chicken, stuffed with bread from the 70s? A mouthful. In an effort to elevate American cooking, Martha Stewart has dictated how to cook a Thanksgiving meal in good taste and with only the best ingredients for decades. 
A series of Epicurean and gourmet magazines compete for the best laid, delicious, elegant, or even the most purest table. But as is the case with glosses, the reality is aspirational and rarely translates to everyday practices. Recently, I went to the local food co-op in a neighboring town. The food snobbery and cost of ingredients on display contrasted sharply with a long tradition of junk food that we tend to eat during the Thanksgiving weekend. I thought to myself, it's a class thing. No, it's an income thing. Industrialized food is the main staple of the American diet nowadays. Fresh produce and healthily raised protein are expensive choices not accessible to a large swath of the population. When I go to the supermarket and walk along the aisles, I see rows and rows of inedible products. The list of ingredients in packaged goods is often puzzling and confusing. What happened to our food? I know the answer, but fear not. I'm not going to regurgitate the evils of the food industry, at least not in this podcast. So when food is no longer a matter of survival, but part of a cultural identity, even if it's killing us, Should we go along with the tradition? Yes, not everyone can afford an heirloom turkey, but do we have to binge on unhealthy foods until we become sick? Is it inertia? Is it self-medication? Is it really pleasurable? Oh, I almost forgot. It's a practice of sharing food with loved ones and feeling grateful for our bounty. This Thanksgiving, or Sangiving, as some Latinos call it, eat responsibly, respect your God, for it will make you pay dearly for the transgressions you commit against it sooner or later. Until the next one, bidding you farewell, Gabriel Alcantara Pols. We're very interested in your comments. Please leave them at the Holyoke Media website. This podcast was edited and published by Johan Rashi Vega and the music is by Moonhooch. Moonhooch.